you know, when you, when you look at those two uh, videos from, and, and of course, the, you know, the first one's satire, but it's, it's based on a lot of truth. Um, you know, what makes the difference? I mean, why do so many people approach church like that in the United States and then around the world so many people are being martyred for their faith? Well, I think there's a lot of differences, but I think one of the fundamental differences is conviction. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're at the end of Ephesians chapter 2. We're talking about the church and some images of the church and we're talking about the church's foundation today, but the way I want to relate it to us is the idea of conviction. And when we talk about conviction, conviction is a belief that produces action. Like a biblical example would be Daniel in the Old Testament. Uh, you know, when, when the, uh, him and his uh, young friends were taken into captivity, and Daniel 1.8 says Daniel purposed in his heart they wouldn't defile himself with the king's delicacies. When he purposed in his heart, that's conviction. It's a decision based on the word of God that produces action, no matter the cost or the consequence. I think that a lot of times we as Americans don't have a lot of conviction. We say we believe stuff, but not real conviction that stands whatever the situation or the circumstance uh, that doesn't compromise, that's not about convenience. Conviction's the opposite of convenience and compromise. Francis Schaeffer said a long time ago, and I think this is very true, that modern man has both feet firmly planted in midair. That's kind of what we're like a lot of times. We don't stand on anything solid. You know, as Americans, we're taught everything's relative. You know, you do you. It's it's your truth. It's your life. You do your thing. Well, that's sinking sand. There's nothing firm there. But what I want to help us see today in Scripture is that the church of Jesus Christ has a firm foundation, and we, as God's building blocks within that church, can stand firm If we understand this and we have the right biblical conviction. So let's go back to Ephesians chapter 2. And this is the third week we've been in verses 19 through 22. We've got one more to go. We looked at the picture of the fact that we're citizens of God's kingdom. We looked at the picture or the image of the fact that we're members of the family of God. And then Paul gets into a third image in verses 20 through 22. And there's kind of two metaphors within the image. One is kind of architectural. It's about building. That's what we're going to look at today. And the other is about us being the dwelling place as the temple of God, the fact that God dwells in us. And so that's what we're going to talk about next week, us being in the presence of God. And so Ephesians 2.19 says, Now, Therefore, you're no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household or family of God. That's what we're going to look at today. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and right, the foundation's key, right? If if you're going to build a house, you got to have a good foundation. If you're looking to buy a house and you go look at a house and there's a bunch of cracks in the foundation, are you going to probably buy the house? Probably not. 
having built, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building, the whole church, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. That's us. We're being built up. We, you know, the church is not a building. The, the church is not a, uh, you know, a, a temple. We are the temple. We are the building of God. It's, we're living stones. It says, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the, the Spirit. Now, when a Jew read this, he or she would have probably thought of the temple in Jerusalem. That would have been the picture that would have been in his or her mind. And the, and the word that Paul actually uses here for temple is the inner sanctuary of the temple, not the whole thing. Uh, someone, a Gentile in, in Ephesus reading this, would have probably thought about the, the magnificent, one of the wonders of the ancient world, the temple of Diana. There in Ephesus, they would have tended to thought, uh, you know, physical building. And Paul is taking this idea of a physical place that people come to encounter God. And he's now saying that the church is being built together in the Lord as a spiritual temple. That God's not building buildings now. He's building a people. He's building us. He's building the church. And God is not dwelling in, we'll talk about this next week, but God's not dwelling in a tabernacle. Or, or God's not dwelling in a temple anymore. God is indwelling by his spirit, the church, his body, his people, his family. And, and so we're being built together in the Lord as a spiritual temple. Now, there's three elements to this temple that, that he mentions in these verses. And, and that's what we're going to focus on today. And, and, and like I said, I want to uh, try to present this in a way that I hope helps build conviction into us that will help us to stand no matter what happens. I mean, you know, when, when we watch that video about uh, persecution, um, you know, it's going on all over the world. Remember Easter Sunday? The bombings in churches in Sri Lanka. That made the news. A lot of it doesn't make the news. I read an article recently. The government of England seems to be looking into this a lot. And there are places in the world where persecution of Christians is approaching a genocidal level. Now, is it coming to the United States? I think there's a really good chance of that. Uh, I mean, did you read about, hear about on the news a couple of weeks ago, the Equality Act passing in, in the House of Representatives? Now, it still has to go through the Senate. The president said he would veto it. But, uh, you know, when it comes to the issues of homosexuality and gender, transgenderism, those kind of things, this would eliminate a lot of religious freedoms in, in, in our country. What's going to happen then? What are we going to do then? Are we going to stand? What kind of conviction uh, do we have? And so, first of all, I want us to see here that the foundation of the temple is the truth of the New Testament. Now, why do I say this? Look, look what he says. Uh, back in, in verse 20, he says, Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the, the prophets. Now, 
I used to read this, the apostles and prophets, that sounds like the Old Testament and the New Testament. But notice it says the apostles, it has that listed first, and then the prophets. And so uh, I think it's referring to you know, the, the, the apostles, the, the 12 apostles who founded the church. But there, were, there was also a spiritual gift and an office of prophet in the New Testament church. And John MacArthur describes what they did as authoritatively speaking the word of God to the church in years before the New Testament canon was completed. Uh, He goes on to say that the foundation that is spoken of here refers to the divine revelation which they taught, which in its written form is the New Testament. Now, let me show you some verses, I think, that shows what he's saying is true. Listen to what Jesus said, John 15, 26, 27. He says, when the helper, the Holy Spirit, comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me, and you will also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning." So he's talking to the apostles, and he's saying now that through the work of the Holy Spirit, their job going forward is going to be to bear witness of Jesus. Now, in Luke, in Acts 2.42, in describing uh, the early church, says they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Notice what Peter had to say in 2 Peter chapter 1. He said, For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. He says, Yes, I think it is right as long as I am in this tent. And by tent, he's speaking metaphorically of his body. He says, To stir you up by reminding you, knowing shortly that I must put off my tent just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. What's he saying? Well, you remember in John, I think it's chapter 20, Jesus told him he was going to die. And so Peter's saying, I'm about to be martyred, so this is the context. He says, moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. In other words, you know why the the New Testament was written? So that we would have a record of Jesus Christ from the apostles after their deaths. So in a sense, and we need to understand this, today we are still under apostolic authority. That's what the New Testament is. And uh, there's a continuity uh, with, uh, within the church from the first century until today. And that continuity is the teaching of the apostles in the New Testament given under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That's why Christianity and, and our faith never changes. It doesn't change with the times. It it doesn't need to be modernized. It doesn't need to be updated. Uh, We don't change it to fit with what people say today because what we're following is the doctrine that was given by the apostles under the leading of the Holy Spirit in the first century. Peter goes on to write here. He says, for we do not follow cunningly devised fables. We made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory. When such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. So when they saw Jesus um, 
on the mountain, transfigured. His glory was manifested. That's what he's talking about. He says, you know, we saw him in his glory with our eyes. But notice what he says now. He says, and we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation or that could be translated origin for prophecy never came by the will of man but holy men of God spoke as they were moved it means led along by the Holy Spirit he's saying that what we have in scripture is even more trustworthy than their eyewitness testimony because it came from the Holy Spirit so Jude writes this, and, and I think this is a, a, a really good summation of what I just said. He says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write uh, you exhorting you to contend earnestly, which literally means to agonize for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. So, This record that we have in the New Testament, this apostolic doctrine that's been passed down through the centuries as recorded in the Scripture, it's the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Now think about it. If it's the faith, it's specific. It's absolute. It's not a faith. It's not my faith. It's not your faith. It's not our version of it. It's the faith. The faith is the body of Christian doctrine revealed in the New Testament. He says it's once for all. That means it's permanent. And delivered to the saints means it came from God to us. It's the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Uh, One more passage, 1 Timothy 3 14, Paul writes, he says, these things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. And and this would be like, you know, it says in Ephesians 2, the household, the, the family of God, not talking about a physical dwelling in the people of God, which is the church of the living God. Notice what he says, the pillar and ground of the truth. Now, when we talk about truth, truth is that which is really real. It's ultimate reality. There's nothing more important than truth. If you want to live life the right way, you have to live it according to the truth because that is what corresponds to reality. It's foundational to everything. If we don't know truth, we don't know reality. And ultimately, if there is truth that is objective, absolute, transcendent, it can only come from God. It's one of the reasons I believe in God. Because truth has to be absolute, objective, and transcendent. It can't be relative. Because uh, if, if, if you say that truth is relative, you're making an absolute statement, so you're contradicting yourself even by trying to make that argument. 
There is no truth or truth is absolute. That's the reality. But I believe the Bible teaches us that truth is personal. Jesus is the truth. The Holy Spirit is called the spirit of truth. Uh, Truth is propositional. It's revealed to us in scripture. And truth is practical. You shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. If we're not living according to the truth, we're living in bondage. If we live according to the truth, we're living in freedom. Listen to me. Our our, our world, our society tells us today to create our own truth, do our own thing, live our own way. But it's a lie. And if you're in bondage right now, and if that's the reality of your life, the reason is at its root that you're not living according to truth. Listen to how Bible commentator William MacDonald explains this verse. He says that a pillar was not only used to support a structure, but oftentimes a pillar was set up in a public marketplace and notices were posted on it. It was thus a proclaimer. So as the church, as Christians, it's our job, it's our role to be the proclaimers of truth. I mean, think about it. If God is truth and he's revealed his truth in the pages of Scripture, how else is the world going to know the truth unless we proclaim it? And listen, if the world doesn't know the truth, it's wrong of us to condemn the world. We need to look in the mirror and repent for not proclaiming the truth to the world. The church is the unit on earth which God has chosen to proclaim And not just to proclaim, to display his truth. How are we displaying the truth with our lives? We talk about truth all day long, but if we're a wreck, why would the world believe that this is true? But it also says here that it's the ground of the truth. Here ground carries the thought of foundation or supporting structure. This pictures the church as that which is entrusted with the defense and the support of the truth. So we're to proclaim the truth. We're to defend uh, the the truth. There's a a song by the band Switchfoot. It's called If the House Burns Down Tonight. And what um, the song is about, they're from San Diego. There's a lot of fires out there. It's written out of the experience of having to leave your house and just kind of grab your family and, you know, head for safety, not knowing if they're actually going to be able to stop the fire before it gets to the house. And basically, what the song is talking about is an experience like that making you realize what's actually really important in life. And the song resolves at the end, the final line of the song says, ashes from the flame, the truth is what remains. And to me, that's so profound because at the end of the day, when everything else burns down, the truth really is what remains. It's what's foundational to everything else. It's what we can stand on. It's what we can build our lives on. But my question is, do we really have some conviction? Listen, if you really have conviction about the truth, nothing or no one can sway you and lead you astray at the end of the day. 
Uh, Madeline Murray O'Hare, the famous uh, atheist from a generation ago that you know, went around campaigning, tried to get Christianity removed from public life, said, I- I'll tell you why some Christians are afraid of me. They are not sure what they say they believe is true. If they were, I wouldn't be any threat to them at all. Do we really believe Are we really sure? Are we willing to stand on? And and once again, not in word, but without uh, uh, compromise. Not just when it's convenient, but with conviction that the Bible is the word of God. That God is real. That he's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That he's manifested himself and revealed himself in Jesus Christ, who is fully God and fully man. Who came, born of the Virgin Mary, worked miracles, lived a sinless and a perfect life, died on the cross as the substitute institutionary sacrifice for our sins, bearing our punishment, absorbing the wrath of God. And on the third day, he literally bodily, physically rose from the dead, ascended to heaven where he's making intercession for us. Someday he's going to return again to set up his kingdom on the earth. But in the meantime, anyone can be saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. And those who are saved become his church that God has set up to work through, to worship and glorify him and to to advance his kingdom on the earth until he returns. Listen, that is the fundamentals of the faith. That's historic, biblical Christianity. Can we build our lives? Will we build our lives on those truths? That's the faith once for all delivered to the saints. But you know what? At the same time, you know, Martin Luther said something to the effect of, this is a paraphrase, but we're cowards if we run from whatever the battle is at a given moment. What's the battle today? Is there truth? What is life? When does life begin? Who has a right to take a life? How do you find gender and sexuality and those kind of things? And you know what? The Bible still says we're all made in the image of God. It says we're fearfully and wonderfully made, shaped in our mother's womb. It still says that God made mankind male and female in his image. And a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Are we going to stand on the truth? Even if there's a price that has to be paid. There's a man by the name of Israel Falau, who apparently is one of the best-known rugby players in the world. Not that I know a lot about rugby. I've watched rugby maybe 15 minutes in my entire life on TV one time. It's crazy. It's like the NFL without pads. It's, it's nuts. Um, but anyway, listen to this. He, he's, he's Australian. On Friday, a three-member panel announced that it decided to terminate Israel Folau's employment for what was determined to be a high-level breach of Rugby Australia's Code of Conduct. The decision makes the devout Christian, the first Australian athlete, to be dismissed for uh, expressing religious beliefs. Okay? He wasn't terminated for committing a crime, but for expressing religious beliefs. Uh, 
It says Falau Super Rugby's all-time record try scorer. I think that's the rugby equivalent of a touchdown, basically. Uh, released an emotional response soon after, saying it'd been a privilege and honor to represent Australia and New South Wales, and that he was deeply saddened by the decision to terminate his employment. As Australians, we are born with certain rights, including the right to freedom of religion and the right to freedom of expression. The Christian faith has always been a part of my life, and I believe it is my duty as a Christian to share God's word. Upholding my religious beliefs should not prevent my ability to work or play for my club and country. Then he posted on Instagram, Matthew 6, 33, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Uh, the controversy over Falau's faith erupted on April 10th after he shared a scriptural message on social media that hell awaits, quote, drunks, homosexuals, adulterers, liars, fornicators, thieves, atheists, and idolaters who do not repent. He said, those who are living in sin will end up in hell unless you repent. Jesus Christ loves you and is giving you time to turn away from your sin and come to him. So, you know, he posted this uh, after a week-long code of conduct hearing in Sydney. A three-person panel last week uh, uh, decided to, that they would terminate his $4 million contract. So it cost him $4 million to take a stand. They actually even offered a compromise agreement, a settlement, where he would come out of it with a million dollars, and he rejected that as well. And in a recent interview with an Australian paper, he said, I believe in a God that's in control of all things. Whatever his will is, whether that's to continue playing or not, I'm more happy to do what he wants me to do. First and foremost, I live for God. Whatever he wants me to do, I believe his plans for me are better than whatever I can think. If that's not to continue on playing, so be it. In saying that, obviously I love playing uh, footy, and it goes down, if, it go down, if it goes down that path, I'll definitely miss it. But my faith in Jesus Christ is what comes first. I'll stand on what the Bible says. I share it with love. I can see the other side of the coin where people's reactions are the total opposite to what I'm sharing. But in Ezekiel uh, chapter 33, verse 11, it says that God has no pleasure in the person that's living in sin. He's a loving God, and he wants people to turn away from what they're living in, and he'll give them life, he said. Now, you may agree or disagree with his approach, and that's fine, but that's conviction. That's conviction. That's building your life on a foundation of truth. We do that. Second, the cornerstone of this spiritual temple that Paul's talking about here is Jesus Christ. The cornerstone's the key part of the foundation, right? Benjamin Merkel writes of this phrase is the cornerstone. Jesus is the most significant part of the foundation, bearing the weight of the building and tying the walls firmly together. Jesus is the cornerstone of the church. And listen, if you're really a Christian, Jesus then is the cornerstone, the bedrock of your life. It's what you're building or who you're building your life on. I mean, look at what Scripture says about this in some other places. Matthew 16, uh, it says, When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. 
But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered Jesus and he said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Uh, that's the conviction, the foundation of Jesus Christ that we build our lives on. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 3.11, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is uh, laid, which is Jesus Christ. He's the only sure, solid, firm, lasting foundation. He's the foundation of the church. He's the foundation of our lives if we're in him. 1 Peter 2.6 says, therefore it is also contained in the scripture. Uh, he's quoting from Isaiah, behold I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. In other words, if you're trusting in Jesus, believing on him, resting on him, relying on him, he is the cornerstone of your life. He's the sure, firm, solid foundation that you're building on. And listen, we all need a foundation that's going to stand in the storms of life. Right? Storms are going to come. Trials are going to happen. That's not the question. The issue is, will our foundation stand in the storms? Listen to what Jesus said in Luke 6.46. He said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? He said, whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he's like. In other words, he's telling a story to illustrate the statement that he just made. He said, he's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently against that house. It could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. In other words, if Jesus is our Lord, if we've surrendered our lives to him and are seeking to live in obedience to him, if we're repenting when we don't, we are building our life on a sure firm, solid, bedrock kind of foundation that is Jesus Christ, the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. But on the other hand, if we're not living for him, not walking in obedience to him, he says, he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation against which the stream beat vehemently and immediately was fell and the ruin of that house was great. You see, here's the gospel. If life is beating you up and you feel like life, uh, that it, it, it's, your life is falling apart, if you feel like your house is kind of coming apart at, at, at the seams, stop trying to build a new house and lay the right foundation. Jesus is the foundation of our lives. He's the foundation of the church. I mean, think about it this way. Look at this little video clip, and, and I think it graphically illustrates it. Look at all the destruction from a storm. You see just a few houses standing here or there looking relatively undamaged. You know what the difference is? The foundation that they're built on. The foundation that they're built on. What's the foundation that your life is being built on? So, the truth, the foundation, the cornerstone of that foundation is the truth himself, Jesus Christ. But then number three, we're the building blocks of this temple. The building blocks of this temple 
are believers in Jesus Christ. We're, we're being built up as living stones in Christ. You see, the church is still under construction. There's then anytime somebody gets saved, Jesus just added another stone into this spiritual temple. That's what's happening. He's forming and fitting and, and, and building the church into what he wants it to be. And really what this text is saying to us is that the church should be growing in size because people are getting saved. The church should be growing in unity as we're being fitted and formed together. And it should be growing in the beauty of holiness as we are conformed more and more into the image of Jesus Christ who is the head of uh, the, the church. And so... My question is, what's our conviction? What are we really building our lives on? Somebody's put it this way. Once again, this is a paraphrase. I may not be quoting this exactly correctly, but, but it's so true. Don't tell me what you believe. Just let me see your life, and I can tell you what you believe. Did you hear that? Don't tell me what you believe. Let me see your life, and I can tell you what you believe. Because our actions show at the end of the day what our convictions really are. Talk's cheap. What do we believe? I mean, we can come to church, and we can say one thing there, but how we're living day in and day out. Are we living in obedience? Are we living with integrity? Do we spend time with God? Do we act one way at church and act another way with a different group of people? Do we say we believe the Bible and live a lifestyle that completely contradicts it? Don't say what we believe. Our lives shout what we believe. People can see it all day long. Are we being faithful to Jesus? Are we living for him? Are we serving him? Are we living with compromise? Are we living with conviction? Are we building the church by reaching people with the gospel? Are we contributing to the unity of the church? Are we growing spiritually uh, to become more like Jesus? Are we being built up as living stones in this spiritual temple that is the church built on the foundation of the truth and the bedrock cornerstone? Of Jesus Christ. What's our convictions? So if persecution, I mean overt persecution, I know there's little things, sometimes maybe somebody will laugh at us or make fun of us or say things about becoming a Christian. And of course, there's people that have had to take more painful stands, even in our country. Sometimes families ostracize people, or there's people that have had legal issues for taking a stand for the truth. But I mean, if overt persecution comes, to our nation. You know why it'll come? It'll come because it's part of God's plan. And you know what it'll do? It'll get us off the fence. It'll show who's real and who's not real. Let me close with this. There's a man by the name of Nick Ripkin. Uh, he's written a couple of books, The Insanity of God, The Insanity of Obedience, a career missionary, Probably one of the leading researchers when it comes uh, to um, the persecuted church around the world. And uh, he wrote a story called Point of No Return. And uh, I'm going to share part of it with you. He says, I was working in Mogadishu, Somalia, 
when my wife called me on the shortwave radio about a meeting invitation. After approximately six months, our team of eight was feeding 50,000 people per day, resettling refugees, running mobile medical clinics, and trying to stay alive in the context of a famine and war zone. I was sure there's no room left on my calendar to add another engagement. But Ruth went on to say that I and one other Westerner had somehow been granted permission to sit, to sit among some of the giants of the faith in the world of Islamic persecution. These were men who represented generations of Christian leaders who lived among Muslims and were part of the faith family attempting to love Muslims in Jesus' name. This secret meeting was to be held in a remote part of Kenya. And then just to kind of, uh, you know, for time's sake, to summarize, he went to the meeting and uh, the focus of the article is a particular, about a particular pastor in Iran who was supposed to share about what was going on there for 15 minutes and ended up talking for two hours in great detail about the persecution that the church faced there, but that how God was opening the door of faith uh, to Muslims in that country. Soon, I, I returned to Mogadishu. And it was about two weeks later that Ruth, Ruth called again on the shortwave radio. Her voice trembled as she informed me that Pastor H, is what he's calling him, the evangelist who had spoken so boldly at her meeting in Kenya, had disappeared. His fellow believers in Iran were certain that he had been taken by the security police, and they feared uh, for his life. The historical Christian community, as well as Muslim background believers, were deeply concerned that his arrest might be an indication that widespread persecution was again becoming reality. And so they began to pray. And then, to kind of fast forward ahead uh, a few weeks later, approximately 38 men and women from a Muslim background were ready for believers' baptism. The church was packed as much as security would allow, with these new believers lined up from the altar, down the aisle, and all the way to the rear of the church. Within Islamic settings, Muslims equate baptism with salvation. And of course, I'm not saying that it is. You know, we're saved by uh, repentance and faith in Jesus Christ alone, but baptism is how we make our faith public. And uh, but they say seekers from Islam investigating a relationship with Jesus Christ can explain away many of their activities, but they can't explain away baptism. There is no acceptable excuse, which is really a good picture of what baptism was designed to be by God in the first place. Uh, Muslims believe that at baptism, a person no longer belongs to Islam, but to Christianity. They've left one community and joined another. The local community says that when converts are baptized, they've left Muhammad and joined with Jesus. At baptism, persecution soars because identification with Jesus is real, irrevocable, and forever. And that's what a baptism is a picture of. Leaving our sin, leaving this world, and being joined to Jesus. He says baptism is the point of no return. So inside the church's baptismal pool stood a leader from the secret meeting in Kenya. Pastor H., who had been missing for weeks now, was his colleague and friend of many years. As this preacher finished his message, he began to prepare for baptism. He looked surprised when he saw his wife approach. Such behavior was unusual, and his concern grew as he saw the tears in her eyes. She held out his cell phone, and his heart sank when he heard the news from the caller. Pastor H. is dead, he relayed to the gathering. A Muslim friend of ours has just called to say that he watched his pastor's body was taken from the back of a truck and buried in an unmarked grave. He said it was obvious that pastor had been tortured before being killed. 
I'm to meet him later, and he will show me where the body is buried so that we can bring pastor home. Your pastor is dead, the leader continued. The man who loved you enough to tell you about Jesus, giving you the opportunity of eternal life, has been killed because of his faith. This is the cost of following Jesus. Now I want to know, he said, addressing the new believers. Are you ready to be baptized? Now that you have witnessed the cost of following Jesus, are you ready to be buried with him in baptism and raised to your new life in Christ? 38 of them, not one person walked away. And he says there's a spiritual war taking place today. And Christians must choose to be on one side or the other. There is no middle ground. Which side are we on? What are are our convictions, really? Let's get off the fence. C.S. Lewis said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, is of infinite importance, the only thing that it cannot be is moderately important. Let's get off the fence. What's our conviction? What's the truth? What do we really believe? Who are we really living for? What's the cornerstone that we're building our lives on? Is it Jesus Christ or is it something else? Don't tell me what you believe. What's your life say if you're really honest about it? Today, some of you need to seriously, genuinely commit your life to Christ. Say, I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. Jesus, I'm trusting you. I'm repenting of my sins. You are the Lord of my life. Some of you need to publicly declare that through baptism. Some of you, you'd say, I'm a Christian, but I've not been living with conviction. I've just kind of been going on with the wor- along with the world. I've been doing my own thing. Some of you today need to get off the fence. And stop trying to make Jesus moderately a little bit somewhat important and add on to your life and realize he is life or he'll ultimately be our judge. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.